This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. I would like to start with acknowledgement just in case I run out of time and Bahani kicks me out. I'm happy to be here and thanks to Qatar Foundation for inviting me and thank you to the organizers, Bahani Asfa and Lynn Wadley and also to Linda. I think we have been communicating a lot with Linda and also to the general staff of Qatar for making this trip and this symposium a success. I'm saying a success because I, I think it will be a success until the end. Yeah, so I've been invited to give a talk on Astropithecus in East and South Africa. It's quite a, an enormous task, and I think I'll try to do justice because it's an enormous field of research that has gone on to make this research come to fruition. So let's get the, the facts. For the first five million years of our evolution since our common ancestors with the closest cousins, the chimpanzees, at seven million years, those first, first five million years of our evolution are confined in Africa. So if we are understanding the story of humankind, the story of us, the very first five million years, you don't find fossils anywhere except in Africa. And m most of those fossils that span during that time, they are within the group called Astropithecus, the genus called Astropithecus. There are others which I'll talk about later, but since this is the focus of the topic, I'll confine myself mostly to that group or genus, the Astropithecus. So to talk about the Astropithecus is, if you're talking about the genus, you can, it's almost the same as if you're talking about human evolution. You cannot talk about human evolution without talking about Charles Darwin. If you're talking about Astropithecus, you cannot talk Astropithecus without talking about Lemodat. This is the person who coined the term Astropithecus in 1925 after getting a skull of what is commonly known as Taung Chowd in a site in South Africa called Taung. This was in 1924, but the publication to name this species was in 1925. Remo Dutt recognized various characteristics of the Taung Chowd, some of which were human-like and others that were ape-like. And as highlighted in the slide, you can see the Taung Chowd skull possessed a forward-placing foramen magnum, indicating that it was walking bipedally. And we know as part of the primate family, we are the only ones who walk bipedally. So he recognized that this has to be in line with the humans. He also recognized that the ape had a human-like forehead, it had no marked diastema, which is the space between the canine and the incisors. 
and it also had a reduced brow ridge. That's this part of your, your face. Those features tied it or blotted closely in line with what we see in humans. However, the skull itself had a very small brain, which is ape-like. It had a jaw which was jutting forwards, which was also ape-like, and it had no chin. So he called these Australopithecus africanus, the southern ape-man from Africa, and described it as an extinct race of apes intermediate between living anthropoids and man. However, this didn't go down well within the scientific community. He was criticized, first for mixing Greek and Latin in coming up with the, the, the naming of the species. Also, at the same time, we had the Piodan hawks, which had been engineered since 1912, and it indicated that the humans or the ancestors of humans, we should be expecting a big brain and a nape like jaw, and the rest of the body was supposed to be catching up in evolutionary terms. And also it didn't help that during that time, Homo neanderthalensis had been discovered in Germany in 1856. Homo erectus had been discovered in Java in 1891, and Homo heidelbergensis had also been discovered in 1907. So there were already specimens that were already human-like that were competing with the theory that Raymond Dutt had indicated that Australopithecus africanus was ancestral to the humans. And also because of the small brain, it was believed that the Australopithecus or the ancestors to humans should have a big brain, and so Australopithecus africanus was contrary to what the scientific community believed at the time. But science has proved that that was right, and we now believe there is a general consensus that Australopithecus occupy a morphological space intermediate between early members of genus Homo and the living African apes. Sometimes it's much Adipithecus, which is there, and Kenyanthropus here, early members of Homo, Paranthropus, which we have Paranthropa Ethiopicus in East Africa, Paranthropus boisea also in, in East Africa, and Paranthropus robustus in South Africa. They merge these into the genus Astropithecus, but this becomes too restrictive because there are clear anatomical differences between all the between the four groups, and these presentations thus excludes members that are at any time referred to as Adipithecus, Paranthropus, Kenyanthropus, and Homo, and restricts the discussion on only members that have been referred as. Astropithecus and in East Africa and South Africa. In East Africa, we have a number of species that have been identified, and these are the ones that have general consensus that they are within the genus Astropithecus. We have four 
species. We have the latest that have been discovered in Ethiopia. This is Australopithecus delemida. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. Bahan can correct me. These Australopithecus anamensis discovered in, in Kenya, Australopithecus afrensis discovered in Kenya, Tanzania, and Ethiopia, Australopithecus garai discovered in Ethiopia, and the vertical lines indicate a species that have been found in more than one site. If it's just a dot, like in Garai, it indicates it has just been found in just a single site. And the horizontal line indicates the span if it dates, there are dates that extend from, let's say, for example, for uh, an amensis, 4.2 to 3.9 million years. But if it's just a single dot, that indicates that specimen has just one single date associated with it. In South Africa, we have Australopithecus prometheus that was named in 1948, then kind of it was controversial whether that was uh, the specimens represented a species, a new species, and it was dropped off. But last year, there were discoveries that named Australopithecus revived the name. It's still controversial whether it's, it's, it's scientific to revive a name or whether the, the name should have fallen out of use. And the dates are still also controversial. We have dates that are least at 3.67 million years, and some who suggest that the species in fact dates to less than 2.2 million years. So that's why we have that dotted line. In South Africa, we also have Australopithecus sediba at 1.97 million years, and Australopithecus africanus at 3 to 2.1 million years. While each of the species has is its own peculiar morphological characteristics, time constraints do not permit discussing each species in isolation. Instead, I'll focus on morphological traits that are rather consistent right through that lineage. So what I'll do is I'll go down from the cranium, indicating what's common and how we understand whether that contributed to who we are and what implications it has. When you look at the cranium of Australopithecus, it shares several cranial characters, including a forward-placed foramen magnum, indicating that this genus was bipedal. They had small brain size, small relative cranial height and breadth, prominent grabera, which is this region here, and relatively robust zygomantic bone, and also they had a jutting jaw. Those are just some of the characteristics. They also had U-shaped dental arcade. The chimpanzees have almost a rectangular dental arcade, and the modern humans, we have a parabolic dental formula. When you look at the brain, the general trend in human evolution is an increase in cranial capacity, 
and this trend become marked in the genus Homo. And usually it's often associated with consumption of meat. We know that brain size increased more than threefold from Australopithecus to our genus species. So you can see the Australopithecus here, they had very small brain size. And when you come to us, it's more than, it's almost about three times what you see in the Australopithecines. One critical question in human evolution is the timing and mode of early human, early hominid brain evolution. As late as 2010, it was generally assumed that brain size increment preceded brain reorganization. From 3.6 million years, that's when we have the Australopithecus prometheus, to 2 million years, which is represented by Australopithecus sediba, Research indicates that Australopithecus' cortical folding patterns in the brain were essentially chimpanzee-like. Brain volumes are also at risk at the upper end of chimpanzee valuation. However, Australopithecus sediba, which is represented here, and also this is sediba, which was discovered in 2008, Australopithecus sediba display human-like local protrusion in the inferior frontal area, which is that region that's highlighted here, and which the researchers led by Chris Carlson, they call this as an implication of early stages of bolstering local neural connectivity in area 45, and which they argue is related to speech. Thus, the current consensus is that there is a gradual neural reorganization of the orbitofrontal region in the transition from Australopithecus to Homo, but not gradual enlargement before transition. So what does an increase in brain size demand? An increase in brain size demands an increase in energy intake and or a reduction in energy allocation to other energy-demanding functions for example, by adopting a more efficient bipedal locomotion, having a slower growth and reproduction rate, and having small, smaller guts. All these factors have been observed or inferred in the evolution from Australopithecus to Homo. If you look at the shoulders and the thorax, Australopithecus genus is characterized by a relatively elevated shoulders and a conical chip in the upper thorax, which is, you can see the shoulders here are elevated. This is Australopithecus sediba, that's modern humans, and that's the chimpanzees. The shoulders are elevated. So Australopithecus have this general chip, which is similar to what we see in the chimpanzees. The high position shoulders have been interpreted as indicative of upper limbs that were habitually used in overhead postures in the context of arboreal locomotion and positional behaviors. That means they would have most of the time been using their arms uh, like this. That's whether they were climbing or using that for movement on the trees. A conical-shaped torso as you can 
see on these, which is similar to what you see in the chimpanzees, the humans have a barrel-shaped torso, is effective in even redistributing stress on the ribcage during arm hanging, but also there's a drawback to that because it makes it difficult to swing arms when walking upright or running. A barrier-shaped thorax, as in modern humans, is well adapted for endurance, walking, and running. This is a depiction of Astropithecus climbing, and you have to agree with me, this has to be a very small tree if they are holding on the branch and also on the ground. If you look at the forearm, Astropithecus are characterized by long arms with particularly large joint services and a higher branchial index. This is great, the higher branchial index is greater than the modern gorilla, but lower than the chimpanzees, which indicating retention of some degree of arboreal competency. This would also imply an upper limb that was habitually used in overhead postures in the context of arboreal locomotion and positional behaviors. When we look at the hand, Astropithecus possessed long, robust, and curved fingers with strong attachment sites for flex muscles, the degree of curvature in the shafts of the fingers is correlated with frequency of arboreal behavior. Astropithecus phalanges are intermediary curved between those of modern humans and great, great apes, suggesting regular substantial climbing and suspension. So the question is, did Astropithecus make stone tools? And what we know is the earliest stone tools are dated to about 3.3 million years. They are called Lomequan and they predate the early members of the genus Homo by 800,000 years, and the genus Homo is thought to have made the stone tools. So most likely, Astropithecus would have made stone tools. If you look at the spine and the legs, Astropithecus had five to six broad lumbar vertebrae that articulated to form a human-like lumbar curvature, effective for weight transmission from the upper body to the pelvis while also permitting the hips and the trunk to swivel forward during walking. Astropeeds are characterized by relatively short legs, small femoral, femoral heads, small joint services, and the small neck, the femoral necks are, however, longer and, and anterior posteriorly compressed than those of humans and chimpanzees and more highly angled. Shorter legs are less energy efficient in bipedal walking, though they help in lowering the center of gravity, hence increasing stability and balance while working on an even substrate. Owen Lovejoy has suggested that long femoral necks increase the mechanical advantage of the hip muscle that stabilize the pelvis. When we look at also continuing on the spine and the leg, the distal tibia in astropith is characterized by an anteroposteriorly expanded metaphysis that's this region here, that has been interpreted as probable early bipedal adaptation that expanded volume of anchor for stress dissipation during walking. The foot of Astropithecus has a large immobilized toe that's in line with other toes as it's evident in the 3.6 million year old Lytoli footprint, and this alignment provides us strong push of dueling toe off. While the pelvis of Astropith is human-shaped, it's extraordinarily broad with a wide side-to-side -side birth canal, small sacral and coaxial joints, 
long pubic rami. Kevin Hunt has argued that a wider pelvis evolved to allow internal organs to ride lower in the body cavity, thus lowering the center of gravity, hence increasing balance and while bipedal walking. Prior to discovery of Australopithecus sediba, shown here, and this is modern humans, it was assumed that homo-like architecture of the pelvis was a, as a result of giving birth to large brain babies. In 2005, Lovejoy argued that the primary differences between the pelvis of Australopithecines and modern humans do not reflect changes in locomotor adaptation, but instead are a complex and elaborate anatomical response to birthing in response to increasing Pleistocene hominid cerebralization. However, the homo-like pelvis of Stropithecus sediba, coupled with a small adult brain, suggests that birthing of large-brained babies was not the driving was not driving the evolution of the pelvis at two million years. Looking at sexual dimorphism, Astropithecus exhibit a greater degree of sexual dimorphism than in modern humans and chimpanzees. They possessed body weights between 25 to 60 kilograms, with males at the high end and females at the low. Females weighed somewhere between 50 and 70 percent of male body weight. In modern humans, females weigh about 85 percent of the male body weight. The degree of sexual dimorphism has implications on social organization as well as mating systems. Primates with primate species with higher sexual dimorphism, by dimorphism are characterized by intense male-to-male -male competition. As Larsen has observed, although chimpanzee adult males express aggressive behavior toward one another, they tolerate each other, live in multiple male multi-male kin groups, and are collaborative, especially in defending territory. Astropy's social organization may similarly have been characterized by multi-male cooperating king groups. So what are the evolutionary relationships? Reconstructing hominid virogenies is extremely problematic and highly controversial. There is no consensus among paleoanthropologists on how to go about it in the first place. Does one use age of the fossil geographical locality, morphological traits, and if so, how many of those morphological traits to use? Thus, there is no single universally accepted phylogeny. My preference is not in drawing lines connecting one species to another, but documenting morphological traits and reasoning about the implications of that in time and space. In conclusion, there are three major conclusions that can be drawn from the studies we have about Australopithecines. One, all Australopithecines features considered together denote a small-bodied, small-brained, robust, jawed bipedal apes that retained a substantial arboreal component to their locomotor repertoire. Available morphological evidence demonstrates that the evolutionary transition from small-bodied and perhaps more arboreal adapted hominins such as Australopithecus africanus, to a larger-bodied, possibly full-striding terrestrial bipod, biped, such as Homo erectus, occurred in a mosaic fashion. In terms of stone tool making, we need to investigate the relationship between posture, arm length, and their internal properties, 
and not just the morphological traits of the hand to characterize a toolmaker. And with that, thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.